0: Hello, welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. I'm so glad that you're here with me today. I want to apologize for running late and say thank you for bearing with me. I'm a single mom this week because my husband is working out of town, which means that I am doing all the things, cooking dinner, running the kids to all their after-school activities and making sure the dogs are in, the dogs are out and all the other stuff in the middle. You know what I mean? My sweet husband usually does all the kid running so that I can come out and record and stay on track for y'all. But he is out of town working this week. So it is just me. And boy, do I realize how much stuff he does around the house. I always appreciate him. But when he's gone, I appreciate him extra. So let's go ahead and get started with today's episode. I feel like I could have titled this episode WTF. And after you listen today, it's a total mess. You're going to completely understand what I'm talking about. I know most criminals aren't masterminds. I mean, after all, that's why they get caught. But these guys take the cake. If so many people hadn't ended up being killed, you might have thought it was the plot of a slapstick comedy. But it's somewhere in the middle between comedy and tragedy because so many people ended up being injured or killed in the process. At the time, the Santa Claus bank robbery was one of Texas's most infamous crimes and led to the largest manhunt ever seen in the state to date. Our episode today takes place in Cisco, Texas in 1927 on December 23rd. Cisco, Texas is a small town that is about 45 miles west of Abilene and 105 miles east of Fort Worth. The Santa Claus bank robbery is still a big part of Cisco lore. There is an historical marker on the old bank building detailing the robbery, and the new bank has a large painting hanging inside, and part of it actually depicts the robbery. There are even still people in Cisco that are related to people who were involved in the robbery, and it's still talked about all the time. And after you hear the story, you're going to understand why. Bank robbery was a popular crime at this time in Texas. The Texas Bankers Association reported that there were three to four robberies a day during this time period. So how do you fix the problem of all these bank robberies? Well, the Texas Bankers Association offered a $5,000 reward to anyone who shot a bank robber during a robbery. Now, come on, Texas Bankers Association, not a great plan. And in fact, they get raked over the coals, especially after the Santa Claus bank robbery, because of everything that went down, which it's a bad plan. In 1927, $5,000 was the equivalent of about $88,000 today. So people were feeling trigger happy. I mean, think about it. That's a lot of money. You could do a lot with $88,000 in 1927. Heck, you could do a lot with $88,000 in 2023. I know I'd be happy to get it. So, as you can imagine, this meant that a bank robbery that might have just been a simple in and out robbery, the money is stolen, but no one's hurt, easily started turning into something deadly, which is exactly what happened in Cisco, Texas. Not only were police and criminals shooting, but the general public were shooting too. By the time everything was said and done, six people would end up dead. Marshall Ratliff and his brother Lee had already gone to prison once for bank robbery, but they only spent one year in prison because the governor, Miriam A. Ferguson, or Ma Ferguson, known at the time, pardoned them and set them free. The Ratliff brothers were just two of the 3,595 pardons that Ferguson granted while he was in office. There was a lot of speculation that there were some strings being pulled behind the scenes for these pardons, but it was never really proven. And also, people were really wondering why. I mean, especially the Ratliff brothers, they weren't anyone special, but nevertheless, they got out. Now, obviously, these two weren't the best at robbing banks to begin with since they had already been caught once before, but they decided that they would rob the First National Bank in Cisco together anyway. The brothers had grown up in Cisco and they thought that it would be a great place to make some fast money in and out, no problem. So the two brothers started to put a crew together, but Lee Ratliff couldn't even keep himself out of jail long enough to be a part of the robbery. He got himself sent back to jail, so William was left to tie up the details. William enlisted the help of Henry Helms and Robert Hill. They were old buddies from Huntsville and had all done time together. They found a fourth guy who was good with safes that was supposed to finish out the four-man crew, but while they were planning their heist, the fourth man, the safe guy, got the flu, so he was out. That meant they had to start looking for someone else. Henry Helms convinced his cousin Lewis Davis to get in on the action. Now, Lewis wasn't a criminal. He'd never been in trouble with the law, but he was down on his luck. He was in bad shape financially, and he was really looking for some way to get his family out of debt. So the other three goons convinced him that he could make some fast money and get his family out of debt and take care of everyone. So Lewis decided that this would be the best way to go about things. As you can imagine, it's not the best way to go about things. So this should have been a sign to the four men that things were not going to go well for them. They'd already lost two original members, one to flu and one to arrest, but they paid no attention to the bad luck that they'd already had, stole a car in Wichita Falls and headed to Cisco. Since William Ratliff had grown up in Cisco, he decided that he would need a disguise to pull the robbery off without being identified. So he borrowed a Santa Claus costume from Joseph Heron, Josephine excuse me, Heron, the woman who ran the boarding house where the men had been staying while they planned the crime in Wichita Falls. As the men came into town, Ratliff put on the Santa suit and told the guys to drop him off a few blocks from the bank. The rest of the crew drove around and parked the car in the alley next to the bank. The plan was for Ratliff to go into the bank first and then the others would follow him inside take the money and then go out the side exit into the alley where the car would be waiting and they could make an easy getaway. No problem, right? No muss, no fuss. Take the money and run. As you can imagine, and I feel like I've already said that a lot, as you can imagine, but it's kind of more than you can imagine. Not one thing went the way that the four men planned. So here comes Santa Claus walking down the street two days before Christmas in downtown Cisco at noon. No one thought a thing about it. It was, like I said, two days before Christmas. All the children, though, who saw Santa wanted to see where he was going. They needed to talk to him and make sure they got in one last visit with Santa before Christmas Eve. After all, they needed to check were they on the naughty list? Were they on the nice list? Did Santa know that they wanted a doll? Did Santa know that they needed a new scooter or whatever it was they were asking for? As you can imagine, William Ratliff hadn't been planned hadn't planned on being mobbed by children. I don't know what he was thinking. Santa calls this kind of a big deal. So at Christmas time or any time with kids, well, children started walking up to Ratliff and asking him questions as he walked down the street. At one point he ended up being surrounded by a group of kids. To his credit, he answered the children in a friendly manner as he nudged the group towards the bank and con- head- and continued heading down the street. Finally, after answering the children's questions and maneuvering the group to the bank, he made it. When he walked inside, there were two bank employees and two customers already standing inside the bank. One person called out, hello, Santa, but Ratliff did not respond. He was surprised when two young girls, Emma Robinson and Laverne Conner, I'm sorry, excuse me, Laverne Comer, I didn't put my glasses on y'all, sorry ages 10 and 12 walked into the lobby from the bookkeeping room. At that same time, Mrs. B.P. game walked in from the street. She was being pulled into the bank by her six-year-old daughter, Frances, who had seen Santa. And of course, all three girls wanted to take their turn talking to Santa about Christmas. Right about the same time that the girls all walked in, Ratliff's crew burst into the, door, into the bank, pointing pistols at everyone and yelling, hands up! At this point, Santa snapped into gear and told the teller to open the safe, and he started stuffing money and bonds in a sack that he had hidden in his costume. The other three men watched the other employees and customers while Ratliff continued to order the teller around and rob the bank. Now, Mrs. Blassingame was not going to wait around to see what happened. Even though the men were yelling, stop, we'll shoot, She pushed her daughter towards the bookkeeping room and shouted as she walked through to the other employees. They're robbing the bank. They're robbing the bank. She kept on going out the entrance or out the exit, I should say, into the alleyway where the getaway car stood waiting. She didn't waste any time though. Frances and Mrs. Blassingame kept on running down the block, telling anyone and everyone that they came into contact with that the bank was being robbed. By the time they made it to the Cisco Police Department, half the town of Cisco, I think, knew, and they all started showing up at the bank. Now, when Mrs. Game and Francis made it to the police de- car- department, they told Chief GE Bit Bedford what was happening. Chief Bedford told officers Rio Reedes and George Carmichael to go with him to the bank. The chief waited at the front of the alley and the two officers waited at the back. When the four robbers inside the bank realized that the bank was surrounded, it started all kinds of commotion. Robert Hill fired a shot into the alley, and the shot was then returned. Hill then fired four more shots into the ceiling just to make sure the officers outside knew that they were armed, in case they didn't already know by him shooting out the window. This in turn led to a barrage of gunfire, since not only were the police outside, but like I told you, half the town of Cisco was now also surrounding the bank. And remember, the Texas Bankers Association promised any citizen $5,000 for a bank robber who'd been shot in the act. So all those citizens were outside armed along with the police hoping to get their hands on some cash. The four robbers took the people in the bank hostage, including the two young girls, and the people in the bookkeeping room. They used their eight hostages as human shields and forced them outside into the alleyway towards their waiting car. In the process, six of the hostages were wounded, including the bank president. Most of the hostages escaped, except for the two little girls. They were forced into the car with the robbers. Now, during the shootout in the alley, Chief Bedford and Officer Carmichael were both shot. Chief Bedford died a few hours later, and Carmichael died on January 17th. Ratliff and Davis were also wounded in the shootout. The men took the two little girls and forced them into the car with them, and they drove off down the alleyway. As they drove off down the alley, they realized the car was almost out of gas, and I'm sorry, that makes me giggle every time I read this. Who goes to a bank robbery and doesn't make sure that their gas tank isn't full? Duh, boys, come on. Well, they realized their car was almost out of gas, and like I told you, not criminal masterminds. They decided that they better figure out how to get some more gas. On top of that, one of their tires had been shot out. So they drove out of town and throwing roofing nails out the car window, hoping to flatten the tires of their pursuers. It helped a little, but not by much, since now they were on the lookout for another car and were hoping not to get caught and the half the town was in hot pursuit. I feel like when I think about it, I feel like it's um, you know, some cartoon scene that The group came across the Harris family who'd been out Christmas shopping for the day, and they decided that this car looked like the one they needed to take. Now, as they held the four family members at gunpoint, 14-year-old Woody Harris, who had been allowed to drive his family on their outing that day, let the gang have the car. But Woody was a quick thinker, and this impresses me for only 14. I don't think I'd have thought about it. He took the car keys with him when he got out of the car, well, the men jumped into the car took the little girls and the money and the badly wounded davis and got into the harris's car the mob had by now started to catch up with them and were firing away at all four men the men tried to drive away but realized that they didn't have any keys to drive away in the car well by this time davis was passed out and unresponsive because his wounds were so severe the mob had caught up with him and while they were being fired upon the Three men got back out of the car, took the girls, left Davis behind in the Harris's car, and drove off again. They didn't have much, much gas, and they had a flat tire, but they decided it was better than no keys. Now, in the process of the switch, Hill got shot, and it wasn't until they drove off that they realized they didn't even have the money. They lifted in the other car. The mob found Davis and the money, $12,000 in cash and $150,000 in securities that they returned to the bank. Davis was taken to a hospital in Fort Worth where he died later that night. So, so much for easy money for a man who had never been involved in a crime before. I feel like probably the whole time everything was going down, he was regretting this ridiculous decision that he made. Now, if the men had been successful, it would have been the largest bank heist at that time in Texas history, but all the money got returned. Now, by this time, it was estimated that the bank had at least 200 bullet holes in it from all the shooting, whether it was armed robbers, police, or just civilians trying to get their bank robbers in so they could get their money. Three people had already died. Two of them were police officers and one of them was the robbers was one of the robbers. Eight people had been wounded, two were robbers, six were civilians. You can see why I said I should have titled this episode WTF. And we're not even done yet, y'all. The three remaining robbers, Ratliff, Hill, and Helms, drove as far as they could get in their bullet-riddled, flat-tired, almost-out-of-gas car. And then they abandoned on the side of the road and took off on foot. And I'm sorry, I know I have the giggles, but the mental image my mind creates every time... I say that, it just makes me laugh. Fortunately, they also left behind the little girls, unharmed, in the car. On Christmas Day, they stole another car and took off again. They managed to avoid getting caught for a while longer until they wrecked that car. Next, they took a man named Carl Wiley hostage and forced him to drive them at gunpoint for another 24 hours. Now, here we go. More gunfire as the men drove away with Carl Wiley in his own car. Carl Wiley's father got out his gun and fired at the car, but instead of hitting any of the robbers or knocking or flattening a tire, he just shot his own son. Luckily it was a flesh wound. Carl survived, but I mean, the amount of people shooting is kind of ridiculous. But yet again, here we are trying to get us some bank robber shots, so we can get five thousand dollars so after they let poor carl out of the car they stole another car well by now the three robbers weren't doing well especially the two who had been wounded they hadn't had anything to eat and the weather had turned bad it was sleeting and the roads were icy as they drove into the town of south bend The threesome started to cross the Brazos River when Sheriff Foster of Young County ambushed the men. Another car chase ensued with another shootout. The men bailed out of the car and took off on foot through a pasture. By now, the Texas Rangers had gotten in on the action, too, and this was the end of the line for the three remaining criminals. Ranger Cy Bradford shot all three men. He got out of the car, held on three bullets, and shot one at each of them. Now, apparently, according to legend, I guess you'd say, Cy Bradford was an excellent shot, and that's how he got most of his guys, was by shooting them. Uh, He didn't kill the men. All three of them managed to stand trial. Ratliff was captured, but Hill and Helms took off into the brush. When the officers got to Ratliff, he had six gunshot wounds. Everyone was shocked. No one knew how in the world he managed to survive, because he was in terrible shape. Six gun- gunshot wounds, and he also was carrying six different pistols. An intense search began for the two remaining criminals. The search included more than 100 men, some on horseback, and even searched by airplane. They thought that if they didn't allow them any time to rest, they would eventually be worn down, and they'd be able to catch them a lot quicker than if they stopped for the night. Can you imagine, though? This is 1927, and they've even got an airplane out looking for them. They're, they put out, pulled out all the stops. Of course, they have wreaked, ha- wreaked havoc all over the central Texas area. Well, at one point, the officers could tell the men were in such bad shape that they were forced to crawl as they tried to get away because they came across their tracks. And at first, you could see footprints. But then it did it show that they were so injured that they were crawling in some of the steeper areas that they had to go to. Finally, on December 30th, the men made it to the town of Graham where they were taken into custody without a fight. They were in such bad shape, so worn down, hungry, they were pitiful, and they were done fighting. Hill was carrying three pistols and Helms had four. So it's no wonder that there was gunshots being fired all over the place. They were armed to the teeth. Now, all three men survived their injuries, just like I said, and then they were soon put on trial. Ratliff was the first to go on trial on January 27th, 1928. He was convicted of armed robbery and sentenced to 99 years in prison. Helms, who was identified as the man who killed Chief Bedford and Officer Carmichael, was sentenced to death in February and then immediately, of course, appealed using an insanity plea, which was not successful. On September 6, 1929, he was sent to the electric chair. Now, no one, not his family, no friends, no one claimed his body. So he was buried in the prison cemetery in Huntsville, Texas. Hill pled guilty to armed robbery and took the stand on his own behalf. His attorney t- had him tell the court about how he grew up as an orphan and spent most of his time as a foster child at the Gatesville State School for Boys. The Gatesville State School for Boys wasn't just a home for foster children. It was also a reformatory for criminally convicted minors. So it wasn't a wholesome place for a young boy to grow up. The jury, gave, the jury felt sorry for Hill because of his terrible childhood. And instead of giving him the death penalty, they gave him a life sentence instead. Ratliff then went to trial for his role in the deaths of Chief Bedford and Officer Carmichael. His lawyer asked for a change of venue because he knew there was no way he'd get him off if he was in Eastland County. Well, the trial for Chief Bedford was held in Abilene, and then he was put on trial for Officer Carmichael's death in Anson, Texas. The Abilene jury sentenced him to death, and the Anson jury gave him a second life sentence, so things weren't looking good for Ratliff. Now, while he was waiting on death row for his appeal to be heard, his mother sent him a wind up phonograph. For those of you who don't know what a phonograph is, it's like the very first form of a record player. So, and it of course didn't need any electricity. You would wind it up like a jack in the box or a little wind up toy. And it would play until the winding ran out. So she sent him this wind up phonograph and a stack of gospel records. As the men walked by on their way to be executed, Ratliff would play the hymn when the roll is called up yonder. He played the song for seven different men while he was waiting his turn. But when his accomplice Henry Helms passed by on his way to the electric chair, it was completely silent. Ratliff didn't play any music that day. Now Ratliff had a plan of his own to get himself off a death row. On the day that Helms was executed, he started to act insane and he was much more successful than Henry Helms was. In fact, he did such a good job that he convinced his jailers that he had gone insane while waiting on death row. His mother, Rilla Carter, petitioned for a lunacy hearing in Huntsville. Now, the citizens of Eastland County were having none of this insanity plea. They were outraged that he hadn't already been executed for the deaths of the two lawmen that he had murdered while in Cisco. The insanity plea added insult to injury, And they were just disgusted by all of this and were demanding justice. In fact, they were angry and it was already getting mob-like. Judge Davenport issued a bench warrant for armed robbery for stealing the Harris family's car on the day of the bank robbery. He ordered Ratliff to be extradited back to Eastland County Jail. While Ratliff was there, he continued his insanity act and went so far as to act completely helpless. His jailers were forced to feed him, bathe him, and even take him to the toilet. His two jailers, Pack Kilbourne and Tom Jones, were completely convinced and eventually were lulled into a sense of security. On November 18, 1929, they left, they let their guard down with him and left him in his open, unlocked cell. Well, of course, Ratliff attempted to escape. He got his hands on a revolver and shot Tom Jones, Who died later from his injuries so here we go another person shot at the hands of the robbers he also got into a brutal fight with pat Kilborn, who ended up beating him into unconsciousness and throwing him back into his cell it wasn't pretty they definitely were a violent group of people an angry crowd had began to gather the next morning outside the jail and by that night it was estimated that there were around a thousand people standing around outside the jail Like I said, we've, we ended up at mob mentality. They wanted Ratliff and they wanted justice. A riot broke out and about 20 men broke into the jail and dragged Ratliff out into the street. They tied his hands and feet and dragged him to a light pole where they threw a rope up over the wire and tried to hang him. Well, the rope broke on their first attempt and Ratliff just ended up falling to the ground but they were not to be discouraged they got another rope a stronger rope and the second time around they were successful the mob hanged the man dressed as santa who robbed the first national bank in cisco ratliff was pronounced dead at 9:55 pm on november 19 1929. several thousand people came to view ratliff's body the next day while it was on display at a local furniture store before Judge Garrett ordered that the corpse be taken away and locked up and hidden from view. Ratless family did claim his body, and they held a funeral for him in Fort Worth. He was buried in Olivet Cemetery. A grand jury was formed to investigate A grand jury was formed to investigate the lynching, but no one was ever held accountable for it. The only surviving robber was Robert Hill. When he was sentenced to life, he told the court that he would make a good prisoner. Well, when he first was sent to prison, he didn't make good on that promise at all. He tried to escape three different times, but was not successful at any time. One time though, he was able to evade arrest for 18 months. Now Eastland County tried him a second time for the Cisco bank robbery, this time for the murder of the two police officers. But the trial ended up in a hung jury and he was sent back to prison to finish out his life sentence. After that, Hill did make good on his promise and he became a model prisoner. 15 years into his sentence, Governor Coke Stevenson granted him a conditional pardon in 1945. He was paroled to the Rusk County Parole Board and was under the supervision of the board chairman. Hill got a job at a warehouse. He got married and became the stepfather of his wife's children. He also joined a church. By all accounts, he ended up being a productive, really nice citizen. It's believed that they paroled him because during that time, most men were off at war. It was during World War II and there was a shortage in the labor force in the ni- in the United States. Whatever the reason, Hill chose not to waste his second chance. He was never in trouble with the law again. And in 1964, he was given a full pardon. By that time, he'd been married for 50 years, and was never in trouble again. Thanks for listening today. I apologize again for being late with the episode, but I hope you enjoyed it. The whole thing, like I said, WTF, it sounds like some crazy movie. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on the episode. You can find me on Instagram at Texas true crime pod. You can also find me on Facebook at Texas true crime. If you would like, you can send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. And my email is Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, if you like what you hear, rate, review, subscribe, and tell a friend. Thanks for listening today, everybody. And I'll see you next time. Bye.